This is the Musial Mental Health Podcast. I'm delighted to be speaking to Greg Lawson today. Greg is a violinist and a composer, a conductor, an arranger, a teacher, amongst many other things within the music industry. And I'm so excited to be speaking to him today. How are you doing, Greg? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always so awkward having to do introductions. It seems to make everybody quite uncomfortable when I'm doing it because folk almost seem like embarrassed that I'm saying all these things that they do. No, I don't. It's a bit like, you know, when you do a concert, you have to put other clothes on. <laughs> That's very <laughs> true. I've always hated that part of it. I've always wondered why do we have to, especially in the classical world, where you have to dress up as you know, 16th century servants in tales and things. You know, why, why are you making me do this? I want to play Beethoven. I don't want to, I don't need to dress up to play Beethoven. Beethoven doesn't need anyone to dress up for him. Do you know what I mean? I love that. You see, so an introduction, I suppose, is just like getting your shirt and your tie on and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? It's awkward and strange, but oh, it has to be done. Absolutely. No, that just makes me think of the time I got told off by a professional orchestra in Scotland because my ankles were on show when I sat down. <laughs> Man, it's, just, it's farcical, isn't it? It's absolutely farcical. I have to say, that's all that stuff. There's so much gumph goes on with the presentation of music, especially in the classical world, you know, all this ludicrous, antiquated formality that just creates barriers for the players and the audiences, you know, and yet it's held onto by this just scared bunch of people who are afraid of change. It's shocking, or are invested in actually looking posh you know it's nonsense it's just nonsense i have a feeling we're gonna have a crack in time today <laughs> we've already got off to an amazing start so would you mind just telling the listeners a bit more about how you came to music as a career and as a passion i suppose it was quite simple for me because i i was I, I didn't seem to be very good at particularly very many things when i was a kid i daydreamed constantly um i was in trouble a lot because um, I'm, I'm dyslexic before they invented the word, you know, we, we were just called thick or stupid. Um, and because I could talk, but I couldn't write, it meant that I got, I could argue the teachers <laughs> down to the ground actually, but I couldn't write anything. And so I used to get, it frustrated them and it frustrated me and therefore we got into trouble with each other, but, uh, and therefore trouble became the the recognizable way of behaving at school meanwhile at home my dad was an artist and so i spent a lot of time in his studio as a kid and he gave me uh you know uh, chisels i was carving stuff when i was seven and and paints and i was doing oil paints and acrylics and watercolors and um and the books that i read were were these massive big books of of you know huge photographs you could open the page up into like this map like a map and you know michelangelo and brancusi and and uh, oh, i was just it was a totally when i look back on it it was a fantastic childhood and it set me up for thinking i think in a creative way and so i just looked for i suppose you look for a way of expressing yourself if that part of you is being triggered then you look to explore who you are in this world and art was something that I was really into, but so was my dad, and he was like brilliant, therefore that was going to be difficult. And I sang. Um, I had a really good voice, um, and I was going to go to King's College um, Chorister School. But my dad didn't really want me to go, um, 
and uh, so he kind of did everything he could to discourage uh, me going there and which was fine by me because I didn't really want to leave home anyway um, but I sang and singing was the thing I could I still miss singing because my voice broke when I was 14 and by and then it just went like that and I'd started playing the Northumbrian pipes and uh, and the fiddle and I really enjoyed that but I hadn't it wasn't anything like singing it was an entirely different emotional experience and and then when my voice went I suppose I started to think of the violin as a voice and so I started to play it differently I started to look at it differently and I wanted to play longer notes and notes that had more complex colours and um, and I had a peripatetic violin teacher who's a lovely bloke but he only taught me for 15 minutes a week wow. um, and uh, and I had that until I was 16 and eventually <laughs> the head of music in uh, County Durham said to the teacher you have to give him to someone else he has to have more than 15 minutes a week because by then I was actually I obviously had a uh, an ability for the violin and so I went to a teacher in uh, Newcastle called Marion Hillier and this is the thing I suppose this is what's probably going to come up a lot in this discussion the people you have as teachers at the beginning of your life the people who give you a mold of a way of thinking that allows you to to that to be a foundation like a positive foundation those people are some of the most important people you've ever meet in your life because they, it's easy to set a template for a child and you can set a template anyway. You know, you can set it twisted or you can set it straight. And she, I went to play and I played lots of slow airs and um, I used to play strass bays as, as, uh, as airs, like really, really slow motion strass bays with like really little, these jerked bowings, just like me. And um, she said to me, um, well, I can't teach you anything that you've just played me. Um, but, uh, I, and I said, well, I think it's other stuff. It's like the classical stuff. I need to learn how to move around. And, and so she said, she got me to play a piece called the Barber Violin Concerto. And it's, it's a, she told me to go and buy a record of it. Cause you couldn't, then back in those days, you had, to, you had to order the music from a shop and it would take like a month to arrive, you know? And so she, I went down to the shop and I bought a recording of the Barber Violin Concerto and, and I heard a violin kind of probably for the first time make sound make a sound that I had not heard before right and it was Isaac Stern playing the Barber Violin Concerto and it's just it's this it's like the first note is like like molten it's like the heart of the sun it's just this rich unbelievably bright sound and um I couldn't I couldn't believe that I played the same instrument as that so um, I learned the first movement from the record by putting it on and learning the first few bars then, and then next bit. And, and I was, I, it, it actually, I wasn't conscious of what I was doing. I was just so turned on by the sound that I learned most of the first movement. And I went back two weeks later for my next lesson. And, uh, and she said, has the music arrived? And I said, no. And she said, oh, well, never mind. We'll start with some scales. And I said, well, I've, I've learned some of the first movement. And I played it to her and uh, <laughs> it was a bit like, oh, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> but it changed my life that, that, that one time was like all those creative sparks that had been set free in my mind as a child, being dyslexic, 
therefore not having to learn to temper my mind into straight lines, but having the luxury of having a dad who's an artist with a studio where all those dyslexic roots could find different, could find uh, resolutions, but in a different way, meant that when the violin got serious in my mind, it just, I just, I learned it really fast. And on the one hand, I learned it really fast. It, it's, it's stuck in here really, really fast. And, um, and from that point on, I suppose, that's when I, I was playing in folk groups at the time and, and, and a heavy metal band and um, the classical music started to kind of slightly take over a bit. And, and then I kind of got stolen and, and by college, you know, I got sent to college and, and in those days you weren't allowed to play any other kinds of music. You know, when I got to college, the teachers were right. No, none of that folk music and none of that heavy metal music. That's not real music. You're going to learn to play the violin. And, and this is the thing, I suppose, when you are 18, you might feel like you're quite old, you know, you're coming into yourself. But actually, you're only a couple of ways from, you know, wearing a tie in a playground, you know what I mean? And having your first love affair. I mean, you're a child, actually. And, and I think that that's when real damage is done to musicians. It, not just the early years, but those years of college, those years of college are the ones where you're suddenly self-conscious, you're suddenly aware of so many things. And all of those things seem to be repressed into conformity in the classical world and, and organized into sameness. And of course, we're not the same. No. None of us are the same. And music is actually, ironically, the universal subject of difference. It's a story of who we are and it is a story of humanity's experience. And that's why it's infinite. And yet, when we learn it, <laughs> we're made to all become the same, just for the pleasure of the college, for the pleasure, for the pleasure of, of, of um, curriculums, and for the ease of teaching, and for the vanity and arrogance of teaching, where people try to make lots of mini-me's, and they fill the world with lots of mini-me's who will do as they're told and fulfill the industry of classical music, which is the orchestra, you know? Suppose that's so, where I, I never really fit in with an orchestra. Um, I speak in an earlier episode about my experience of orchestral auditions, and you know doing the hundreds of hours of practice for that one audition and then turning up with your two concertos with cadenza and your 10 excerpts knowing that there'll be some sight reading as well and then going into the audition room and they're only willing to listen to maybe two minutes of music and actually in some instances people have already made up their mind whether they're going to have you or not based on what you look like when you walk in which is why in some instances there's screened auditions and the last audition i did um they had asked for the exposition of my Mozart and one excerpt and I burst out laughing. <laughs> I was in the middle of the audition, the panel were all sat at the table and I just burst out laughing and I, I couldn't stop laughing because something just went bang in my head. I was like, what am I doing? Yeah, yeah. It just didn't suit me as a personality. And yeah. for years I'd told myself that if I didn't get a trial in an orchestra and I, I didn't kind of keep going for these jobs, that I was a failure. And a lot of that came from my experience at music college, not yeah. not down to my violin teacher at all. She opened my eyes to so many different kinds of music and was always a champion for traditional Scottish music um, as she was Australian. Mm -hmm. She wanted to learn more about it, but otherwise it just felt like I was a lesser person 
or a yeah. lesser a lesser musician because I couldn't I couldn't take this seriously and fair play to anybody that gets through the process because it just doesn't suit me. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like the the teaching of of classical music is the teaching of um, of of an, of an industry. It's not about the teaching of the subject of classical music. In fact, you know, I teach at the RCS, and I have to say, um, I don't think institutions even get close to teaching the subject of music the way music should be taught. Um, it's 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 horribly singular. Um, it's segregated. Um, it's deeply naive. It's overly simplistic. It's massively competitive. Um, <laughs> And it's like, in, in fact, it's so many wrong things. And all of these wrong things have an impact on people. Because when you play, you're open. And therefore, when you're open, you can't be guarded when you play an instrument. It's the, it's the point of playing an instrument is that you have to connect a feeling with an idea and a sound and play it to someone else. And that takes a lot of vulnerability. And not to sound all lovey about it, but, you know, you do you do lay yourself open it is the it is the point and and therefore when you're taught we should be taught how to do that and why we're doing that and all the different ways we can do that and to be empowered by that and instead the exact opposite seems to happen it i mean that's the thing i i was um i auditioned people at all the jobs i had i was sitting on panels and uh I hated it actually because it's just the worst way of of trying to find someone's musicianship to make them stand in front of you in such a formulaic way and play to a set of constructed norms that you criteria that have to be fulfilled for the audition i mean on the one hand there are things that have to be fulfilled i was i was quite sure in an orchestra you know i look for certain things um certain bow strokes an awareness of style and rhythm stuff like that and and but just the way that people do it it just it's like i basically realized i was watching people in fear you know and sometimes and it sounds weird but you can sense you don't just sense the fear you can almost smell the fear is palpable when people walk into a room and they are terrified and you think well what is the point in trying to in setting up a situation where in order to find out what kind of musician someone is, you have to make them scared, you know? I mean, is that not going to take all the musicians, all the people who have sensitivity, they're gonna crumble under that. And all the people who don't care are just gonna flourish under that. And so- you're I mean, I came I came to you for a lesson actually to, do, to deal with audition nerves. Yeah. And I remember vividly you telling me the story of actually doing laps outside yeah, uh, and actually going for a run before then going in to perform because it would actually get rid of the nerves. It would get your heart rate up, and yeah. it would settle you into that performance situation. Yeah. Oh, I was, I man, I used to, I've tried everything for fear. You know, everything, all kinds of meditations, uh, exercises, drugs. I mean, the works. You know, and and of course, the only thing that really works is to have a foundation of self-identity, which is based on something honest and true and accepted. I did a thing, so I teach at the RCS and I have, um, I do a, a class with the trad musicians and I teach in the classical school as well. So I'm often seeing these unbelievably strange comparisons between 
the entirely different ways that students are allowed to be in two different forms happening two corridors apart right and yet never the twain shall meet because my my husband and i spoke about this at length uh when we first got together because he had actually asked when we were at music college to come to the scales class Mm -hmm. with the classical violinists and was told by the then head of strings absolutely not yeah it's just it's so i'm delighted to hear you do both disciplines because that's the way it should be (laughs) well I've always, the thing is, it's like when I started playing the violin, I started playing folk music and rock music. And my dad gave me this incredible, uh, very concise library of music to listen to. It was his record collection. And he showed me how to use the record player so I didn't break because I broke a record one day. And so rather than get really angry with me, he thought, well, I'll teach him how to do it properly. And therefore he won't break any more records. And he, he liked the fact that I was making an inquiry to listen. So he fostered that. And his record collection, was, it was just gorgeous. It was like, so it was Leonard Bernstein, uh, West Side Story, Beethoven, a box set of Beethoven Nine Symphonies, a uh, load of Bob Dylan, um, Ravi Shankar, uh, sitar music, Packard Lucia flamenco guitar music, Billy Pig and, the, and Joe Hutton and the, and the Charlton Brothers playing Northumbrian folk music, uh, an album of Catalonian folk singing, the incredible string band, uh, the Beatles and Elvis Presley's greatest hits, right? It was like, and as a child, when you don't know, before you know anything, before people start telling you stuff that you think you then know, you're, you're open. And all I heard was this unbelievable variation of the same thing, you know, the world of music. And it was, it all triggered the same emotions, but in different accents or in different dialects but it was the same language and and then everything from that point in my life through education has been about people segregating those differences separating those differences and actually investing hierarchies of importance in those differences and none more than the classical world that seems to think that it's it has the top line of art and culture and everything else is kind of below it i think that's changing actually it is changing. yes definitely but it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like any change that's happening in our society today, you know, uh, equality for women. I mean, you can say it's changing, but it's still nowhere near, right? You know, tolerance of, of, of people's difference. It's changing, but it's still nowhere near. No. And, and classical music as a kind of a, an institution of, of, of beautiful music, but incredible, um, potentially incredible arrogance about its position. That's also changing, you know, mm-hmm. and auditions for me were these was this like it was a it was a real kind of this is what this this is what this is what's wrong. It's this is how we're doing it wrong. You know, we're making everyone afraid. I used to work really hard in auditions to meet everyone that came into the room as they came into the room to wear big smiles, big eyes, be as completely harmless as I possibly could make my character be. Um, tried to make them feel okay and happy about themselves, take them to the stand, adjust the stand to them, ask them what they were going to play. If they said Mozart A major, I'd always go, ooh, lovely, as if I hadn't heard it before. <laughs> you know, it's like I heard it a thousand times. But it, you, you try to do anything that you could to make them feel comfortable about themselves. And, and I was definitely the odd one out that did that. 
I, did, I was about to ask, do you feel like you were in the minority of people oh. that did that? Because certainly from my own experience with auditioning, I always felt um, that, I mean, the, the thing about the fear is so mm. accurate. You walk into the room thinking, oh God, oh God. And you've, you've never felt less like yourself Yeah. because you're trying to play in a way that's true to you, but also trying to psychoanalyze what each individual person on the panel wants to hear. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and that's... So you're actually not playing, you're not playing music. You're not actually being a musician. You're you're trying to work out how to be in order to please people. Mm -hmm. And depending on who you are and who you think you are, you might have already decided that you're not going to please them anyway. So what's the point? And it's it's all really really defeating and and so unnecessary. It's like you know any industry has a recruitment process, mm -hmm. and any industry that takes itself seriously thinks about how it recruits really carefully and the classical music is world is still doing recruitment the way it's been doing for 200 years well actually no for like 100 years you know it's it's totally wrong and but it's also i think it's very connected to the way that we're taught um what do you make of the the trial system that's within orchestras because having never had a trial mm -hmm. it could be perceived that i've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder the way that i'm talking about it and i don't not at all. It just didn't suit me as an individual to go through that process. I knew that I was too anxious and too, um, I, I don't like using the word sensitive because that almost sounds like I'm using it in a negative way, but I couldn't cope with the feeling of failure yeah. over and over again if I didn't get a trial. And it started to harm my identity as a musician. And I realized that it didn't mean that I was rubbish at my yeah. instrument. And although other people may perceive that to be mm. um, the ideal of failure, um, I realised I had to step away from that because my talents lay elsewhere yeah. within music. But I'd be interested to know what you make of the trial system within well, classical orchestras. Well, I mean, the, the worst thing about the trial system is the word trial. I mean, you know, when I was on trial for jobs and I have friends who are not musicians and they say, how's it going? So oh, I'm on trial at the moment. And they're all like, oh, no, what have you done? I said, <laughs> No, no, I'm on trial with an orchestra. And they'd be, they'd be trying to wrestle with that concept of the word trial. How could that relate to getting a job in music? They couldn't bridge that gap that we just accept as a word. And words are powerful. And words mean things to us. And being on trial means you're going to be found guilty or innocent, right? Guilty never thought of, of it like that. Or, or innocent in order to get the job. I mean, it's the whole process is crazy i mean there has to be evaluation you know obviously mm -hmm. you can't live in a world where you give up standard uh for some misguided sense of egalitarianism there has to be concepts of standard and we but how you teach people to understand and relate to standard that's a different thing and how and to how cope you, as well how to cope yeah. with the criticism that comes your way yeah. and actually teaching people how to give constructive criticism as well yeah. and not just taking their own issues out on other people but i think that in a way the teaching doesn't teach people to teach for themselves to think for themselves sorry the teaching teaches you to to be a thing that has been preordained and one of the problems why i think classical musicians end up or musicians also it's like, i think it's a general thing but it's very specifically probably more exaggerated in the classical world the reason why they can't ever talk about the way they feel or why there's no culture of talking about the way they feel is because they were never taught to talk about the way they feel they were taught to to hide it in 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 
quite brutal and draconian ways, actually, you know, through being subverted and through being scared and through being told off by teachers. And the whole concept of art is a giving, it's a giving form. It's, it's reason for existence is to give and reflect. And yet we're not taught how to give. How you would know? you say you've coped with criticism over the years within your career? Well, when I was younger, of course, the thing is, I got to college, right? And um, I'd learned, I'd only had like a year of violin lessons, like lessons that showed me how to hold a bow and how to hold the instrument. Everything else had just been like the way I held it. And so when I got to college, my teacher, I got accepted into college on a condition by the teacher that I'd gone for a lesson before. And he said, basically, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. So if you come to college, you're going to have to deal with learning how to hold a bow from scratch, learning how to hold a violin from scratch. We're going to get rid of everything that you, all your mechanics, and that's going to change. And it means, he said, you will be the bottom in your year. You will be the lowest person there. You won't be allowed to play music. You'll be learning how to hold a bow. It's going to be psychologically difficult for you because everyone else is there has had the benefit of, you know, years and years and years of music of tuition and you haven't. But if you can handle it, then then I'll then I'll teach you. And so I thought, well, I have to I have to learn how to how to make the sounds that I feel. So I'll deal with it. So I kind of went with a slightly kind of Geordie attitude to the whole thing of, you know, I'm just playing a waiting game. You know, I'm going to learn how to do this. And when I do this, then I'll do what I can hear. And what I hear sounds good, therefore it'll be fine. At the same time, part of me also felt really shit. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I would force myself to, we had class every week. And I suppose it's about my character. My character is a character that fights i suppose and then ironically it was because of the bad teaching of a dyslexic kid that made me kind of go for something as opposed to retreat from something mm -hmm. but that's just either fortunate in terms of that's the nature that i had and and could equally be disfortunate or unfortunate if that wasn't the nature i had so my confidence and my unconfidence i think like most people have just kind of done this it, they've one is always in the ascent, they're never in balance. I can never get them. Well, only now in my 50s, actually, I've started to get my confidence and my insecurity in a bit more control. It's taken me a lifetime and it takes us all a lifetime because no one ever talks about it. No. Not, it's not discussed at college at all, you know? And it's like we said when we were chatting before we started, if you want to make any change, it has to be an education. And that means from the beginning of a child's life, there's a responsibility to building them foundations where they can think for themselves, where they have a sense of autonomy and where they can trust their emotions and their feelings and their instincts and accept that sometimes they'll be wrong. And that's just the way of it. And it's not about failure. You know, it's it's about learning, really. And that just goes to show the importance of good teaching as well, because I think that old adage of those that can do and mm. those that can't teach has never been more wrong. Oh, it's just, <clears throat> it always irritated me that actually, I, I, I didn't teach <clears throat> for a long time 
because I didn't think I could. Right. Um, I didn't think that uh, because I had to go back technically, I had to regress in order to learn how to hold a bow and how to use my arm and how to do all this stuff. I've always carried with me a certain sense of being slightly disabled, given the fact that I was also not allowed to play folk music and not allowed to play any of the music and that I kind of decided to buy into this because what I was going to gain, I felt was really important and I would come back to that, you know, and so I've always felt like a bit of a misfit in the classical world, but also the technical part of me never felt like it was as good as everyone else. I don't think you're alone in that. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that you knew that you could come back mm -hmm. to the music that you felt were at the core of your roots, because there's so much, certainly in my own experience, where I felt like um, going back to doing traditional music, which was where I started as a child, I didn't start with classical music, it was trad stuff that I did, um, was a lesser form. Mm -hmm. And I always absolutely hated that. And, you know, I would I would listen to uh, Blazing Fiddles, which, you know, to those listening who know me will laugh at now because I'm obviously married to one of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'd do it, I'd do it in, in kind of secret almost. And I'd, I'd go to gigs, um, you know, of, of the bands that I loved because I had this real love of rock music and pop music and dance music and all these things, but I would never talk about it. Yeah. I would, I, it would always be, you know, talking about symphonies or concertos or whatever else. So I do really resonate with that that sense of feeling like a bit of a misfit but from what i'm hearing from other people since these podcasts have started that's actually way more common than anybody's willing to actually admit yeah yeah totally but i think that's <clears throat> that kind of disconnect is all because we're not allowed to be quite simply in the first place who we are you know as a as, as a young person learning an instrument there's there's kind of ownership from teaching and there's ownership from from cultures and traditions the classical tradition or the triad traditional music tradition you know folk tradition or the jazz tradition or you know <clears throat> everyone tries to kind of uh push you into one space and of course it's a, i think that's it's a real problem and it's a problem that obviously you know there are differences between things and you have to respect those differences and understand those differences. But there are also bridges between things. And, you know, it's like there's a beautiful uh, Sufi poet, Rumi. I, I, used to, I used to read a lot because Beethoven read Sufi poetry by Rumi. And I really got into it. But actually, some of it's really gorgeous stuff. And there's one lovely phrase which comes up a lot, which is celebrate the difference and everything that lies in between. That that's the purpose of our lives is to celebrate difference. Because... It's like doing the Martin Bennett stuff, you know. It was always a dream for me to try to, at some point, find something where you could get loads of different people, musicians from different forms to come together. And in that point of coming together, realize that their differences were beautiful. Not, not, not better than or worse than, but they were beautiful. And that actually, when you put these differences together in the right way, it, it becomes something bigger than differences or similarities and absolutely that, and that's why i mean that's why i did that with martin's music because martin's music was the the perfect vehicle for that to happen but it was groundbreaking for its time i was i was looking today at the release dates for when 
uh, bossy culture and grit came out. And I mean, yeah. it was 1998. Yeah. yeah. You know, actually, you know, Martin hit it, you know, when he was at the, at the RSND, you know, he didn't, he was, he was, he was, he was in the same class as Alistair Savage, you know, and Alistair Savage didn't know that Martin was a trad musician for years. I was at college with Johnny Hardy. We were in the same year at college together. And I didn't know that Johnny played folk music. I had that similar um, similar instance with Kristen Harvey and mm. Megan Henderson. They were the year yeah. below me. And I didn't know just how rich a traditional music culture they came from, yeah. being from the west of Scotland and from Orkney. Yeah. And listening to them play now, I just, I couldn't imagine them doing anything else because their their musicianship is just so organic. Yeah. I gave them, I, I, um, I, I examined, that's the wrong word, I was the adjudicator for their, uh, for Kristen's um, recital. recital at college. And I was sitting with the head of strings at the time and myself and one other teacher. And there was like a, a load of recitals and there'd be like three classical musicians and then a trad musician and another classical musician and two trad musicians. And I gave Kristen and Megan the highest mark of everyone of the whole of all the different recitals in that one bit and the head of music said to me he said you can't do that and i said um I, i'm the external examiner i think you'll find i can do what i want that's the point <laughs> of being external and he said but but you can't give the highest mark to the traditional musicians and i said these two were the best musicians who played today therefore they get the highest mark it's got nothing to do with form. It's got to do with musicianship, you know? And I didn't know Kristen. I didn't know Megan. I didn't know either of them. And then about three weeks later, Kristen was playing um, with Nicola Bernadetti and the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, the, that lovely piece. What did they play? I've forgotten. They played this piece of music together. And, and I was sitting there in the, in the orchestra thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. Just as well I gave her a good mark, innit? You know what I mean? There she is, playing with Nicola. I mean... The prejudice, look, prejudice exists everywhere. It's part of, it's part of human nature. It always has been. And, and, but we know that the only way to remove prejudice is to inform and to, to mix with difference, to spend time with difference and realize that it's not scary. You know, folk musicians are generally insecure about classical musicians because they look at a classical musician, they think the classical musician can read really, really well. They can do vibrato right? And they move around a lot, okay? They do this up and down. At the same time as feeling a bit insecure about that, the, the folk musician also thinks, yeah, but at the same time, I get to play without music and I get to play with my mates and, and I really enjoy myself. The classical musician looks at the folk musician and they see the folk musician as being someone who is like this incredible free spirit that they can, they're allowed to be themselves they love the fact that they can play without music and they're in deep awe of it. At the same time, they're also thinking, yeah, but I can do vibrato. And I, you know what I mean? Everyone's just shoring up their insecurities with their securities in this ridiculous contest. Jazz musicians look at folk musicians and classical musicians and they think about themselves. Well, I can read just like a classical musician. I can improvise and play without music just like a trad musician. Therefore, I'm actually better than everyone, right? And then, <laughs> and then you stick them in an, an ensemble at the Grit Orchestra, and all of a sudden, everyone has to reevaluate how they do what they do in order to do with everyone else. And they all learn something about 
uh, each other and that enhances who they are it's and really interesting that, that at the beginning of education and not as adults the world i think would be very different for all oh i totally agree uh i mean it's really interesting you're saying about the um the juxtaposition between the classical violinist and the trad violinist because that's just basically the kind of conversations that me and my husband had uh, yeah. when talking about work you know he always refers to my playing as well you can actually play up the dusty end of the instrument right yeah but actually i think about the immense amount of skill and tradition and technique that he has as a musician yeah. that i have absolutely no access to because i've never been taught like that yeah and the way that i've always compared it when talking to other people about the differences in our playing because you get that kind of really daft question of oh well who's better it's not a question of being better so all chefs can cook food yeah but some chefs have the kind of classical style and mm. others have um a much more um specific style of cooking whether it's you know french or japanese or whatever else and that's how i always compare our playing there's no two there's no instance where one person is better than the other yeah. it's completely different styles completely different styles but that's the thing see in the classical world we have managed to conform style into um, a very kind of narrow bandwidth. And the reason for that is because orchestras are industries that are run where they have to have a product at the end of every week. And therefore they then take the risk of difference. They try to make everyone the same so that they can do a Radio 3 broadcast on a three hour, six hour rehearsal where it'll be in tune enough, in time enough and sound homogenous enough to pass as Tchaikovsky. But in actual fact, you know, I played in orchestras, I played in John Wilson's orchestra and John Wilson's orchestra is a hand-picked orchestra of people who play the violin or whatever instrument they play at the absolute front of their ability. There's no holding back. That's how you get a place in John's orchestra. And, and yet, all of those people committing to sound without a moment's hesitation means that what they're translated at is actually, it's probably the best orchestra in the country. It works, risk works. Risk is a natural part of the creative process. And in teaching, if you, if you iron out risk and try to create standard, then you lose the greatest part of music and you lose the greatest part of the person's reconciliation with themselves as a creative thing. And that means we're all, it's like, what was that book where they had um, animals that went around with them? Um, what were they called? They were, can you remember it was on the television. It was, it was three books that they made into, into a television series. I do, and the title's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> and, and everyone had, they all had that little animal that was their, oh, it was their word. It's like being severed from that. Yes. You no, know, they're familiars. They were called their familiars. You know, that's how, that's how we educate. And it's no wonder that everyone's scared. And when everyone's scared, they're defensive. And therefore they, 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 are, they attack when they're, when they're scared. And so I had this thing in, the, in my trad class um, where I talk a lot about nerves and about fear and about anxiety a lot to them as to try to normalize it and also to try to give them a sense of it's, this is a shared thing. We all get scared. And one of the best ways of dealing with fear is to be able to talk about it and understand that your partner or your desk partner or the person sitting next to you on stage is also going to get scared. 
And if you're there for them, then they'll be there for you. And therefore you try to create a sense of community in music, which is I think what's missing because of industry. And so one day I decided to do this thing where we all sit around a big circle and we play tunes and we talk about music and colors and ideas and concepts and all kinds of stuff. And um, I said to them, right, I'm gonna start here and it goes gonna go around like this and everyone has to say the same sentence but with your name in it. And the sentence is this, hello, my name is Greg and I'm a good violinist, right? And the next person looked at me and they, they couldn't say it. They couldn't say good, I am good. They couldn't say I am good. No one in the class could say I am good without giggling or spluttering or feeling nervous or embarrassed or self-conscious or, you know. And I said to them, <clears throat> the point is that we're building a foundation as an 18, 19 year old that's gonna last the rest of our lives. And that foundation is based on fear and insecurity and self-loathing on all these negative things. And what's wrong with the word good? No one's saying they're brilliant, right? <laughs> you're obviously good because you're here, right? You wouldn't be here if you weren't good. Therefore, can we not learn to just accept that we're good and, and use that as the foundation upon which we build to be better forever and ever until we die or over broad it becomes an affront to human dignity? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like that's... And, and the thing is that all it takes is talking and all it takes is openness about teaching and all it takes is for us to mention these things for people to... Children, you know, you're going to find out, you know, your, your, your little one is one. The way they see the world is, is so vulnerable and so beautiful that you realize that it's so easily broken by careless thoughts, by careless actions or by selfish deeds. And as a parent, you start to really notice that your role as a teacher for a child and therefore you you have to teach them good things, you know, because it's so easy to accidentally teach them bad things. And I think that's, with teaching, it's not, it's not like the teaching of classical music is, is, is on purpose. It's not purposely being cruel. It's not purposely being vindictive or, or neurotic. It's just, it's become that because everyone is damaged. Yeah. Yeah, I often find um, my my kind of train of thought with a lot of this is that because the, the reason that we're in this kind of vicious cycle of negativity within certainly um, the classical music industry, and it's it's not in all places, but it's certainly something that you do come across quite commonly. Um, it's because people that are kind of at the pinnacle of their career or heading towards the end have been so badly treated that it's the only way they know how to respond to the younger generations coming up. And part of it could be defensiveness. Part of it could be entitlement to, to kind of, well, I've been through it. So now you're going to go through it. Exactly. exactly. And then part of it could also just be almost like a warning for um, future generations coming up so that people don't end up getting hurt. And we actually explored that in an earlier podcast with Adam, where he was fresh faced 18 going off to, to college and he was in the car with his saxophone teacher and he wanted to make a living out of composition and was told, oh, you're never going to make any money out of that. You know, you're not even going to a conservatoire. You're going to make nothing of yourself as a musician. 
and it stopped him playing for a number of months afterwards he refused to play and it's like you say that one careless conversation or that one careless attitude mm -hmm. towards your aspiration can be so damaging oh it's just it's easy to do and therefore if it's like anything once you realize it's easy to do you put you put rules in place to stop you from doing it accidentally you know it becomes a conscious i consciously will not say that i consciously won't do that you don't leave it a chance you know and it's like because someone has learned through fear and they've survived so they think they've survived because that's just a perception um they then will willingly almost put other people through the same thing because they think well you've got to survive it when i had a girlfriend when i was um just as I was leaving college um, and she was the one that kind of pointed out to me that I was dyslexic, right? My immediate response to that was to reject that completely. You know, I, oh, dyslexia is nonsense. It's just, you know, I was, I was kind of against dyslexia, <laughs> even though I was dyslexic because I'd had a, I'd had a whole life of feeling shit about it, but somehow surviving it. So I felt that, um, I was like defending almost my persecutors. It's like the Stockhausen syndrome or something, isn't it? I mean, it's like, and that's where education falls for me, is that, as I said in this earlier on, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's a spiral that's going inwards. You know, it's, it becomes neurotic. It's diminishing in its, in its ability to, to release a human being. And, and actually, if you just reverse the spiral, in the way in your concept of teaching, it automatically takes care of so much of the nurturing of a, of a person. You know, it's not so hard to do. It just needs, it needs to be discussed and it needs to, it needs to be discussed enough so that institutions start to take notice. And I think to an extent they, they try, you know, I mean, I'm given quite a free hand in the RCS, Joshua, um, when he first asked me to take the THCP classes, I said, a what? said it's called a technique in healthy practice and i was like oh god what does that mean and he said anything you want wow we never had that when i was there no i'm genuinely interested as to what that is now oh it's brilliant it's just it, it allows me to kind of think all right what do i want to do then in in a class with a bunch of students um and especially when you're talking about technique because technique is a thing I like to think of technique as mechanics. You know, the, the violin is all about your arms and your elbows and your thumbs. And if you sort out your elbows and your thumbs, you have the mechanical fluency to be able to play the instrument. It's really quite straightforward. It's not esoteric. It's not mystical or magical. The subject is mystical and magical and beautiful and esoteric, but the mechanics is just mechanics, you know? But the first person that I taught at the RCS who's a, a trad musician was Ryan, beautiful Ryan. And, and I, I'd be careful what I say here because I love Ryan very much, but I was amazed that the way his body worked could produce such amazing and exquisite music because looking at it, it shouldn't. According to the principles that I had at that point about how technique works on a violin, you close your eyes, it's beautiful. You open your eyes, you think, well, how's he doing that? You can't do that with a Boeing arm that looks like that. Now, I was teaching Ryan, he wanted lessons. And I, I realized that, well, I can't actually teach him how to hold a bow like me, right? 
because that will take away from him something about his style and about his unique individual sense of the way he plays the violin that is also that's his technique so all i need to do is try to inform his technique to grow and develop and not stay the same and become limiting and that's where josh asked me then to teach the classes so i could try to suggest to traditional musicians there are ways of improving the way you hold your instrument without it detracting from your sense of style or your sense of tradition or your perception of tradition. Um, you're not going to suddenly start playing Mozart, you know what I mean, in the middle of a session in the Pope. The A major is not going to suddenly come out, you know, in the middle of a gig. <laughs> That's not going to happen. What is going to happen is that if you plant a long seed with someone, if you give them a, a set of, of, of things to consider and then guide them towards going there without forcing them there at some point things will resonate and they'll find they'll find their way and if they want specific help they ask for specific help and i some of them want to know how to move around so i say all right it's going to take three months you know to learn vibrato and then immediately nine percent of them say that they don't want to do it but one percent says no all right i'll 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 put the three months in you know and it's it's a much nicer way of actually looking at our quite limited concepts of technique. I know loads of players in orchestras who are really technical, but they have no freedom to express. And actually technique can just quite easily illustrate that you have nothing to say. It can be, it can articulate very easily that you may be fluent in a language, but there's no poetry in what you say. Whereas someone who doesn't have very much technique, but is struggling to say something, can end up saying something really poignant and meaningful without the technique to do it. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. It's the thing that gets me most about teaching is how to, how to introduce the person to concepts that are real, disciplined practice, you know, understanding your subject, getting to grips with the mechanics, but not that that overawes or makes them feel inadequate or insecure, but it is something that that you try to get them to to draw themselves to, so that they learn and they are able to process information and be their own teacher. Because that's what you want from any student is that you get to the stage where they're their own teacher. Yeah, we we I talked about that quite a lot with um, with Lee, who features in one of the earlier episodes last night teaching anybody to become their own teacher and be able to practice yeah. effectively is the biggest gift that you can give as a teacher it's, to a student. It's the biggest liberation. Yeah. It's setting someone free, isn't it? I mean, totally. free has got to be the object. And yet, as long as classical music sees itself as an industry first for orchestra, it will, it will narrow its horizons to, to conform to that. I used to do these lectures for the, incoming uh, years in the conservatoire. They only asked me twice, actually, I think, and then they stopped asking me again, because I said to them all, basically, I've auditioned people for 25 years. And I can tell you now that if, if your objective is to leave here and get a job in an orchestra, well, then the numbers and statistics say that 80% of you won't get a job. And you can consider that that's a failure or you can consider that the world of music is much bigger than an orchestra, <laughs> you know? That's so well, true. There's only one thing. There are 
there are hundreds of avenues for you to explore your musical personality in this world. And, and if you get a job in an orchestra and you're one of the 20%, then out of that 20% who's successful, you will be overworked, under-respected, um, exhausted, working six days a week, playing six hours a day, full on, non-stop, every day of every week of every year. And in 20 years time, you will probably hate music, right? So what do you want to be? Like, what's your aspiration here? You know, and although I thought that was a really important thing to say to young students, like, you know, there are choices for you to make and you have to know who you are to make those choices. It's very it honest. Goes, it goes against the kind of the, 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 the green. And also, yeah, the conveyor belt that just like pushes people onto a particular career path, you know? Well, I think that's why conservatoires at one point were nicknamed the Sausage Factory. Because yeah. they were just churning, yeah. churning people out that would roll into seats. Totally, totally. And as I've got older, you know, when I was in the Chamber Orchestra, I remember when I was in the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, I was actually quite... Um, uh, I was a bit of a musical fascist, I have to say. It's a period of my life I look back on with interest because on the one hand, I was really obsessed with classicism, with the, the beauty of classicism, which is empirical. It's not really, it's not about your self-expression. It's about expressing the thing. It's about expressing the form of classicism, which is about balance and symmetry and all those things. And if you get it wrong, you, it's just wrong. It's either right or it's wrong. There's no subjective middle ground. It's just Mozart either sounds good or it doesn't sound good. That's the way I thought. And I almost think I had to think like that in order to really learn classicism as a, as a finesse, as a real thing. And it's always my, uh, it's my compass point. Wherever I travel, wherever I go and play different kinds of music, I always come back to Mozart. I have to be able to play Mozart, I think, because that's the, that's the essence of the mechanics and symmetry of this instrument is that that's, it's expressed really well like that and and it has is right or wrong i can't get away with just being flamboyant do you know what i mean and getting away with it it doesn't work in mozart you can be as flamboyant as you like if if it's if it's not right it's just wrong <laughs> i use that as my reference point for where I, wherever i travel and and also for students who want to learn other things and there's a growing number of classical students now who are where the environment is such that they it with a teacher like me anyway they're it's okay to learn other things. But I always try to get to learn that you have to learn from a point and you may as well choose the point of high articulacy to learn from. So don't give up on Mozart if you want to go and play some jazz because Mozart shows you how to hold a violin unlike, unlike anything else. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. And if you learn that, you can hold it anywhere you want actually afterwards. So it's funny, isn't it? It's this... The subject is actually really interesting and really beautiful and really varied and should allow loads of access for people to be part of it and loads of access for people to express themselves in the world. And yet that subject, which is this universal truth, is, is kind of narrowed down and kind of held in check by quite, quite narrow-minded teaching and, and really simplistic curriculums. You know? I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by your thoughts of having been a principal player in a huge orchestra in Scotland. What it was that actually drew you to that job and that position, if within 
your experience as a musician and as a teacher, there is such conformity there because that seems to kind of be a bit of a conflict of interest to you it's, as a musician. It is in a way, I suppose with me that, I, I mean, I was a principal and I led orchestras and for me, there was a, the desire to sit there was only ever really about the fact that I felt I could, I could, my ears have always been good. And I suppose it's something to do with learning a lot of art as a kid. I've had a, I've got a, a mind which likes structure because it, it saw form. I made form with chisels and I understood volume and dimension and content of form. And the content of form in a sculpture is the same as the content of form in an arrangement of a piece of music, you know? Sure. And it's just, it's just a slightly different metaphor, but it has the same constructs in it. And in orchestras, I, could, I was always amazed that a lot of people didn't seem to listen to what they were doing. <laughs> they didn't seem to have an interest in the piece as a whole, right? They were just obsessed with their line. And I was always listening to other people's lines and thinking, well, that's, that, I don't think that works. That needs to be like that in order for this. And I'd be waiting for conductors to say that. And quite often they didn't. And you'd be like, why aren't you saying the obvious? You know, this needs mm -hmm. to be like that. And so I kind of found principal jobs so that I could, in some ways, I suppose, be free to express myself about the music. Because the worst thing about being in an orchestra is most people are completely silent. They can never talk about what they love. And, and that means that over the years they become repressed, you know, and sad, actually, I think. I mean, some, some find enormous joy in just like being part of this massive thing. But I can't help thinking that self-expression, I don't mean self-expression just by being like, you know, indulgent. I mean, expressing an idea, self-expression. Um, that's really important that we're able to find areas where we can vocalize it and where we can discuss music as a subject. You know, my dad's an artist and he would discuss with his, with his other artist friends. They would, they would come around this around the kitchen, they'd be talking about art, like it was a really, like they meant it, you know? And I used to try talking with music, about music with people and they would like, in the classical world be like, no, we don't do that. You know, it's very little, invested kind of passion in in the form of a piece of music so i i found principal positions because it gave me a chance to it also gave me a chance actually to learn when i was a young lad and i went to west berlin to study and i was directing an ensemble and and i didn't like myself at all i was not i was so sure about ideas that i was not kind i was not considerate of other people's abilities I expected and demanded them to be able to understand and do the, the, the ideas that I was presenting. And it was like, you know, when you're arguing or something and you suddenly become aware of the sound of your own voice and you're ashamed of yourself. Yes. That happened one day when I suddenly realized I'm, I'm not being a nice person. I'm, I'm all worked up, I'm hostile. I'm using my Geordie shoulders to force people to do things. And I, I had this realization that I, I'm not ready to occupy this position. I'm too insecure. I'm too 
uh, sparky. I need to learn how to be a better person before I come to a position like this. But and isn't so, it interesting how the insecurity side of things was actually making you, pers I don't know, forward yourself as being more confident? Totally. totally. Because I think there's a, such an awful amount of that in, yeah. in the music industry in general, not just classical music, whereby people become more hostile and more um, abrasive to get their point across because they are feeling unheard or unappreciated or underconfident in many ways. Yeah, it's it's endemic. I really think it's endemic. I mean, just like that little exercise of the students proved that to be able to say, hello, my name is Greg and I'm a good violinist, right? But even as I'm saying it now, I'm kind of smiling stupidly and, and feeling all like, you know, embarrassed that I'm actually just said it to other people who are listening, that I've admitted that I'm good. Oh no, how arrogant of me. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And 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 my I my insecurity was making me make other people feel insecurity. It's like it's just it it just begets itself constantly until you break the cycle and you either break the cycle by teaching it properly in the first place or by being able to talk to people throughout their lives about how this makes you feel because when it comes to mental health if each one of us is sitting in this kind of microcosm of conflicted identity and a little microcosm of an isolation of not being able to um, express who you are well, that's going to make you feel bad and and making and therefore there is i say i would say in my experience in music there is a massive underlying issue of what we call mental health you know issues where where, where people are not fulfilled people are not open people are not reconciled to who they are and we are all living on this foundation of insecurity we're building a house on sand you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. it's and there are parables to teach us not to do this, and yet, and yet we're doing it, and we're still doing it, and it's still being perpetrated. And discussions like this, I think, are vital because whenever I talk about fear and nerves with my students, there's always this huge relief that they start to feel. You know, I mean, I I try to get people to play in class when they're feeling nervous, and say to them, look. If I ask you to play a tune now, you're probably going to say no because you, you think you're going to get bow shakes. But you're going to get bow shakes in an environment where it's okay to get bow shakes. You're with people who are automatically going to forgive you for having bow shakes. And you are going to get to experience what it's like to shake in front of people and exercise the fear and the shame of that and get used to learning how to deal with it. And then people will volunteer. All right, I'm feeling a bit nervous. I'll play a tune. And then they go like this. And we all have a bit of a giggle and talk and comfort each other. And next time they play, they're more confident, you know? That's the kind of class that I certainly wish that I'd been part of. I mean, I know a lot of my colleagues that take beta blockers for performance yeah. anxiety. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues that have given up from doing solo performance of any kind because the thought of going out there as an individual with just your own name to back you rather than yeah. being part of a band or an ensemble or an orchestra is too much for them. Yeah. Um, what would your advice be to anyone who is in that position who thinks I can't, I can't put myself into that vulnerable state? What would your advice be? Well, first of all, what I say to all of them is, is your role 
the role you have chosen chosen in your life is not accountancy right it's it's art right and the role of of art is to look for the vulnerable state it's the essential state you have no choice you have to put yourself there you can't back away from it there's if you go back away from it then become an accountant because accountants are really important but it's not it's not the same subject right there are parameters within accountancy there's um, rights and wrongs there's rights and wrongs yeah and so first of all it's like accept the vulnerable state as being a state that actually you go to it's a state that you want to be excited to reach it's a state that you realize actually this is who i am i have chosen this this is my subject that space belongs to me and i'm going to own that space i'm going to be in that space i am going to be vulnerable and i'm going to let that work and sometimes it will be scary and sometimes it'll make me feel really bad but if you accept that that's your space and you develop with your friends a sense of community and, and, and support, then when you go to that space, you're never actually alone. You know, that feeling of alone, of loneliness is, is, is false. It's real if you, if you haven't built frameworks and networks and networks of, of talking about it and networks of being honest and open about it so that you actually have the courage to go there because you know that sometimes you will fall and that is the nature of the thing that we do and and we should almost take absolute pleasure in the times that we fall you know i look at my the the, the performances that i've done where it's all gone terribly wrong i look at them like with an audacious amount of yeah brilliant i really really messed up there i mean that was spectacular heroic failures because it's necessary. I used to play in Scottish Opera Orchestra uh, when Alexander Gibson was the conductor. And he was a guy that was, he was a, he was a brilliant musician. And he was incredibly vague with his hands about time and about how it worked. It's almost like he, he knitted the score like a giant blanket from the beginning until at the end of the piece, the blanket was finished. There were no bar lines, there was no dogma, it was just this free-flowing thing. And when it worked, it was spectacular. And when it didn't work, it was an absolute catastrophe. <laughs> and I used to love the fact that he had the nerve to do that. He had the nerve to break it in the attempt to try and make it. And he would shrug it off and he would start again, you know? And I think that's the big secret about the way we need to be as musicians, is that we, we have to accept who we are. We have to look for it and it won't always work. If it always worked, it would become accountancy. I mean, it's like, it, it can't, it has to be this way, but it needn't, it needn't be, we needn't do it alone, you know, most importantly. And that's where a discussion and a series of discussions and open discussions and the continuity of discussion will allow people to kind of gather as a as a bigger sense of togetherness that we're all in this at the same way do i was talking to a friend of mine laura samuel who's the leader of the bbc symphony Orchestra of the day and she said this amazing thing she'd got to know someone in the orchestra recently quite by accident something had happened events had brought them together and she discovered something about this person as a as like the history of their lives you know and she said you know, I work in a group where I know everyone's name. I say hello to everyone. I ask them about their family. I try to find out about them because 
she takes her job as a leader responsibly. She said, but actually we know nothing about each other. And, I, and we don't. There's so much, when you discover what made someone be who they are, there's a different reference point and different sense of respect and equality and, and, and sameness, like similarities and stories. Like you and I have discovered loads of similarities about the way, where we came from and how we, how we felt in music as being slightly odd and isolated. And, and, and then we discover that, well, if we feel like that, probably most people feel like that. And therefore, we, we don't need to feel so different anymore. Yes. Do you know what I mean? We can let Absolutely. it go. We can let that stuff go. It's like, oh, right. So you feel that too. Oh, well, I'm no longer, it's not just me then. You know? Yeah. And that's the whole reason I wanted to start this, this podcast. And for ages, I wouldn't do it because I thought, well, no one's going to care what I've got to say. And then I realized that that was my own imposter syndrome speaking yeah. and actually having conversations with so many different musicians that I've met along the way wouldn't only justify what was going on in my own head, but might actually help others who are feeling the same as me. Totally, totally. It has to be, it has to be discussed. And because um, change, you know, it's like Brian Cox, you know, time moves forwards. I mean, we are on an inexorable journey. We are all moving through time and change is inevitable. You know, for me, the, the, there are still areas of pockets of conflict in, in lots of different worlds. I mean, in the trad world, I have to say, there is this, I understand it completely. There is a fear among some trad players that if you, if I was to say, right, look, this is the bow and the violin also has its own tradition, right? Like it was made a long time before it was playing jigs and reels. It was made according to principles and maths and philosophy and science that all came down the, the trade routes from the East into the Delta of Europe, you know? all that mathematics, all that building of arches and domes that transformed instruments from being flat instruments to instruments that are arched instruments. That's the same technology in, in the belly of a violin, it's the same technology in, in the arch of a, of, a, of a Muslim or a mosque, you know. And all of these, all of these things are, I've forgotten completely where I am. I just wandered off there into, <laughs> I, was in, I was in the Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul there, just going, oh wow, this is amazing. I don't know what I was talking about. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Sorry. But you know what? There was just so much. There was so much there that was still really interesting. So I love. I love all of that. It's staying. Um, <laughs> what I'm going to divert slightly and just kind of ask a bit more about you because what I've found fascinating so far throughout the podcast is that you've talked so much about the helping of others mm -hmm. and the kind of experience that you've had as a musician. But I would love to know a bit more about you and what you feel the highest point of your career has been but also the lowest point of your career and if it's ever kind of driven you to a point of wanting to give up because it's very apparent that art and music are such a massive part of you the individual but has there ever come a point where you've thought i can't do this anymore but yeah i've given up loads of times i mean i've sold my violin i've given up and sold my violin i've done that more than once actually wow um I remember the, the biggest, the first biggest sense of failure I've ever had was when um, I was in Scottish Ballet Orchestra when I left college and uh, I got to lead it. And we had a solo, I had a solo to play in Romeo and Juliet, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. And I could play the solo, I could play it. 
I understood the solo. I, I knew it. It was like a friend. I understood it completely. And then it came to the performance and I tried to play it and it was just shockingly bad. <laughs> I, I, I totally freaked. That wasn't the first time I'd got nervous, but it was that it was felt like the most important time that I shouldn't have got nervous that I did. And it made me feel really bad for a long time. And, and shortly after that, I did an audition for the Scottish Chamber Orchestra for extra work. And the audition was so bad, I felt, that I came home and I said to my girlfriend, that's it, I've had it. I'm just, I can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. I, I don't, I don't know why it goes wrong, but it goes wrong. I can't handle the conflict of understanding completely the thing and then physically messing it up. Um, so I took a job with the guy who just sold us our house insurance because we just bought a flat. I took a job selling insurance. <laughs> wow, I would never have seen that as something that you would you would do as a career change, but you it's know. It's ridiculous. I mean, look at me, it's ridiculous. I mean, I can't <laughs> I hate insurance. I think it's a, like the, the whole world of money is just a big immoral cesspool to me. So I took a job, I got to put me, me, I, I put my suit on and a tie and I turned up and he took me through all the forms and how you do this and what this. And I was there for two days and I got a phone call from, from my girlfriend. And the guy said, I've told you, she's not supposed, this is work. You don't take personal calls. And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> and she said, Greg, listen, the Scottish Chamber has just been on the phone and they've just offered you the next three months work. And I did this like really quick about flip and realized, I said, I took my tie off and said, uh, I'm sorry, I resign. <laughs> <laughs> and I left the room and I went back into the SEO. But all that insecurity didn't go away. It was just, it's there. It was there festering all my life. And then um, I got, I, I would suffer from, I've suffered from really bad downs, uh, low periods where I've been quite self-destructive and done really crazy things, you know, uh, to me, not to other people, but to me. And, and one of them was that I would sell my violin. And so I would keep on bloody selling them. It's ridiculous. I've had some really nice instruments and I would sell them and then play on anything for a period of time and then gradually get real and think, what am I doing? I need to have something that I can have a relationship with. And I'd find another one. And then a number of years later, I'd hit a downward spiral and I'd sell it again. Um, so those moments have always been the worst part for me. The, the feeling of where you give in to your your insecurities and and you really feel that you are not worth uh, the existence of, of playing and then at the same time that's kind of countered by i suppose the thing for me that is still to this day has probably been the most astonishing experience as a musician was the grid orchestra because there was a it wasn't just about the fact that for the first time, it seemed I was using all of my brain <laughs> to conduct, you know, I had to, there was no room left for doubt. It was just full of all the information, all the things I needed to do in order to make this work. But there was also this really sense of this is a right thing to do. 
all these different musicians, all these trad musicians and jazz musicians and classical musicians, and they're all in one space and they're all smiling and they're all dressed in normal clothes and they are giving 100% of themselves because it's allowed. You know, that for me was like the antidote to like 25 years in an orchestra where the exact opposite seemed to be happening on a permanent basis. So what a culture change to have actually created for all that many people. It was amazing. Actually, it was really, but that's the thing. It's like, when I realized that, I thought even more, it just made me concentrate on the job. I have a job to do here. That job is, is about being really clear, about being invested in the feeling of the piece, making sure if anyone's lost that I can bring them in, and looking at the pipers and often going, not yet, because they were just like meerkats. They were absolutely gorgeous. They were sitting there with parts with like loads of bars rest in meters that they wouldn't normally count, you know, thinking, when do we come in? When do we come in? So they were like whistles like this or pipes just looking at me. And you you were aware that they were looking at you, be like look at the trombones and the cellos and stuff. <laughs> no, not yet, not yet. And if you even glanced at them, they'd start, no, 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 not yet. They were brilliant. Everyone's learning curve was so uniquely different to them in that group. You know, you could see each group being inspired and excited by the what the other groups were doing. And it was all this gorgeous, gorgeous firmament of of release, you know. So I think for me, that was the, it changed me completely. In some ways it, it really destabilized me as a musician because it's a really hard thing to repeat. And it's a hard thing to almost like not want to experience again and again and again. And, but you can't, you know, it takes six months to write all those scores, you know? So it's like, you can't do it <laughs> every night. And it's a, it's a thing I found I like that role. I enjoy that role when I'm in that role because it seems to make sense of my brain, you know. That's interesting because you'd said, you know, before we'd started recording and I was saying, you know, which which particular parts of the music industry would you like me to note when introducing you? And you'd said, I, I don't feel like I have an identity mm. at the moment. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, I would love to conduct, but I would not love to conduct a classical orchestra because <laughs> I don't want to harden myself up I don't want to walk in front of people and be judged and criticized and and uh, all that stuff and have to learn out how to convert that with the great orchestra we were a family basically you know it was everyone knew everyone we'd all work together we'd fallen together Tom Bancroft and, and Phil Bancroft had seen me behave in really you know, not very good ways. When I was younger, I used to really kick off a lot and get just lose my passion would completely overspill. And when I played in McFalls, I used to lose it quite a lot. I wish I could go back in time and teach myself not to, but it was it was part of the way I learned. And they'd seen me really kick off with things. And they were always nervous that I was going to lose it, you know. And, but I never did because of course it's an entirely different set of circumstances. You know, it's, it, it taught me to grow up a lot. You know, growing up takes a long time. 
Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's the Peter Pan thing. You know, nobody ever really wants to grow up, but no. you you realise that you have when you look back at a situation that you've been in in you know previous ten years, previous twenty years, and you think, oh, I'm not behaving in the same way anymore. Crikey, I wish I could go back. Oh, I know, I wish, but that's and that's why I've come to teaching now at this point in my life when I kind of feel I've grown up enough, I've learned a lot, and I'd like to give people information that that prevent that that means they don't have to make the same mistakes they did they, they don't have to go through the same trauma of identity that if you can actually empower someone to 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 have knowledge of who they are well that means that their life course is, is going to be built on positives after positives why do we expect that there should be negatives after, after negatives it's a it's that doesn't make sense to me. And yet that's the way I've lived. I've gone from negative to negative to positive to negative to, you know. And teaching is about trying to make sure that you make sure other people don't waste their time, you know, trying to throw themselves off a cliff or sell their instruments. I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It's been so interesting and amazing to speak to you and hear all of your insights on that. And I wish I could go back to music college and actually study with you now because a lot of what you're saying are things that I wish I'd heard age 17, age 18 yeah. when I was starting yeah. out. Well, that's I, I'm saying everything that I wish someone had said to me, basically. I'm just thinking of what all those things are and trying to trying to say them, you know, I suppose. It, look, thank you. It's been great. It's been lovely to talk. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, that was a good time.